Hey, so welcome to Reflection as a Service. I am Paul Merrill, joined by my co-host, James Jeffers. And we're here to pump you up. (laughs) (laughs) We're here to talk about software engineering and entrepreneurship. Tonight, we're going to talk about... What are we going to talk about, James? We're going to talk about... You're in charge of content tonight. Yeah, uh, so I'm going to ask you lots of questions about Beaufort Fairmont. Oh, okay, so we're going to talk about my company. Right, because it's only fair. Uh, we dug into digital obit a while back and I thought, you know, we should probably return the favor and talk about Beaufort Fairmont. And so at this point, if you don't know, Beaufort Fairmont is the company that Paul runs and Paul, can you give us the, the elevator pitch for, uh, we write software to test software. So we do automated testing, which is functional testing. Um, we work with dev teams to help them automate their testing and we can work with test teams to help them learn new skills to do automation themselves or come in and do the automation work. And we kind of look at all three levels of automated testing, whether it's end-to-end testing, integration testing, or even unit testing. I try not to let my guys go down into the unit testing level because I think that's mainly for developers. But that's what we do is we do project work and outcome-based projects related to automated testing. So, uh, and you started Beaufort Fairmont, well, it seems like it's been how long? Four years? Yeah, I guess. So (laughs) these things don't necessarily have um, a hard start sometimes. So in 2009, I started How to Geek On, which was, you remember that, right? Yes, I do. And so How to Geek On was basically a a job search agency. We were trying to help the IT folks get jobs during the downturn in 2009, 2008, 2009. Best timing ever. Yeah, well... So there were a couple problems with that, and a number of people saw the problems long before I did, and, and a couple of them saw them when I did and after I did and all that kind of stuff. But one of the biggest problems was that, first of all, IT in this particular area, in the triangle, never got below full employment. So we never really got below 3% unemployment. And so when that's the case, it's going to be hard to sell your goods. Second problem, which is the bigger of the two, is that people without jobs tend not to have very much money. So it was kind of a tough sell. Um, I knew that I wanted to be in services. It was a hard year, uh, but what I found during that time was that people were still trying to pay me to do automated testing, and they were paying me to do automated testing. And my background, of course, is software development, software engineering, and I've done some automated testing along the way, kept kept getting back into that niche because I just think it's, it's a fun area to be in. But people kept trying to pay me to do that, and so after How to Geek On completely failed, um, I realized that I'd, I'd go back to work for others for a little while, and then I had an opportunity to do this as a business for a client starting in 2012. So it was kind of a, a not really a hard start in 2009, although the, the company existed and made money from that point forward. Um, but the hard start was really in 2012. That's when we really got going. Coming out of How to Geek On, your guys are kind of looking at, well, how am I making money right now? Right, because people are paying you, and I think this is, this is an advice that I've seen uh, other uh, let's call it internet business gurus talk about um, you know what product should I should I investigate making right and so if you're not real sure about what people are are demanding or in need of you can kind of look to see well if you have a job and it sounds like you did right you're getting kind of side work to do testing why are people paying you to do testing so why were people paying you to do the testing why did they come to Paul Merrill was it was it what was going down there well, I think part of it is like we were talking about that we were still in full employment and people still were hunting for highly technical folks, uh, even during that downturn. 
So that was a part of it. But why were they coming to me? Well, number one, because my background is in software engineering. And so I've actually, I've, I've been a software engineer since 2000, I guess. I have a degree in computer science and um, I've studied really hard and worked hard along the way. I did a little bit of management and project management and other things. So I got a really good view of the first few levels in an organization, the few, first few layers, and felt really good about it. I led an, a, quite a number of projects and um, made lots of mistakes and learned along the way. But Like, like what? Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, so the, the biggest one was convincing, was a significant voice in convincing a company of the platform they should be using for their content management system. Back when I was much too young to have any influence over that. And it turned out to be absolutely the wrong way to go. Um, Wait, the, like the, the technology or the way you convince people to do it? The technology. Okay. Yeah. Potentially the way I went about it too. I hadn't really thought of it that way, but yeah, I mean, one of the things that I, that I did in terms of trying to implement it, I, I didn't listen as much as I should have to the individuals that were looking over the product and, and trying to figure out if this third party product should work. Um, I didn't take as much responsibility for the decision to do that as, as I should have when we found out that it was not a good thing to go with. But um, the, the decision in general was just not a good one because it turned out that the content management system that we used, it was a third party application. It just wasn't meant to do the volume that we were trying to do. And it wasn't meant to handle the size of the content either. So without getting in too much detail, um, the, the, con the files were relatively big. Uh, it was actually a versioned database. So we had a version of every single piece of that content as well. Um, and then the, the tool that I wrote, the tool that would bring content into the system. And uh, I did an absolutely terrible job at it. So <laughs> I tried to use reflection um, in there to, at the time in Java. And this was in um, mid 2000s. And so there were still performance issues with reflection in Java. And I imagine there will, will always be, but anyway, um, that was just a bad approach. And then when we took that out, it made it even uglier. And so I made tons and tons of mistakes along the way, but yeah. So that was, that was one of the mistakes in terms of software engineering. Like you said, you, you were still getting work. People were coming to you and saying, Paul, we need help with testing this, that. Yeah. Sorry. So that was long before I ever started doing okay. yeah. this, this business, both for Fairmont and before I started doing automated testing, I, I guess, uh, as a, as a full-time gig. But yeah, people people were coming to me and wanting to train their individuals with automated testing and get people learning it and stuff, especially people who were young and wanted to get into programming. Where, where were you getting your business from? Um, I, I wasn't getting much. I was just getting enough to know that there was something that people would, would pay for. Um, one of the first things was just a friend that came to me and he wanted to, to do this for his company, uh, for his application. The next thing was I kept finding these contracts and people were happy to pay me as a contract employee. And it was a little bit of a difficult transition to move, to try to, to try to figure out how to do a business to business relationship. Yeah. So I had a couple of starts and stops with that going through recruiting agencies and contracting agencies. So if you go through the third body, like a recruiter or another contractor, it's harder to do quarter quarter directly to the client, right? Because uh, tell me if I'm wrong, but the kind of the umbrella organization wants to keep everybody as a contractor to them, right? Yeah. So there's several things going on. Number one, we've become accustomed to contractors as being very much like employees, 
Yeah. Um, they're just extra staff. And most of the companies that are doing that are using them as supplemental staff for long-term needs rather than temporary needs uh, as contractors are supposed to work. Um, but there are some rules that companies get around by using third parties to do that. But one of the biggest difficulties that I saw was just, number one, the mindset. They see you as a, a contractor that's working for a staffing agency. They figure you're supplemental staff and and you're not a business on your own, even if you have a business to business relationship with that party. But number two, positioning your, yourself as something other than an employee is difficult and helping folks understand that the rules are different. So when you're business to business, as you, as you know, when you're working with a client, you come in with a certain set of expectations right. and they have a certain set of expectations. We're going to do jobs A, B, and C. We're going to do them over a wide period of time. We're not going to do jobs D, E, and F. The position of a, an employee or a contractor as most first and second line managers see those contractors is that they must want to do more work and we must want to do more roles and we must want to provide more of everything because that's what we expect employees to do, right? Meaning and that's what we expect contractors to do. So sure. the, the management looks at the contractor as the contractors are expecting us to shovel more at them. Um, I, I guess I think the managers more than anything are expecting that the same deal that happens with employees happens with contractors, which is normally we have an employee and we say, okay, look, if you do a little bit more, then maybe you'll get a promotion. If you do a little bit more, then maybe you'll get a raise. Take on these extra roles and maybe this will happen. And so it's a carrot that's kind of held out in front of people. And I think a lot of people are okay with that. And that is how you move up in the corporate world. You can't really take on a new job until you've done that job to some degree. Right. Um, so it's understandable. However, in my position, I, I was kind of, I had realized that there was a value different for those things. So if I'm doing three roles for your company, to me, it seems like the value is three times what, you know, three, three times, whatever that is, but that's not the way that it works when you're an employee or a contractor, when you're a company and you come in and you say, okay, these are the roles we're going to provide. It's very well understood that we're not here to do extra work. And if you ask us to do more work, it's perfectly fair for us to say, okay, well, we need to bring on more resources or we need to provide it at, a, at the right cost that fits in with the value that you perceive. So it's kind of a better understood world. Does that answer your question? It, I, it does. Um, it's weird though, because I realize as I'm asking these questions, you know, to somebody who's really still inside corporate culture, these questions will seem weird, right? Because it's like, well, like you kind of understand how to swim in those waters, but I realize it's been a while since even I've been in those, yeah, well, in those shoes. Yeah, I had a conversation, two conversations recently that were really interesting about this that I hadn't thought of in a long time, but there's a part of my makeup that's different than other people, as you know, and I think that yours is is similar. You're, you're one of the shape-changing lizards. <laughs> is this what you're trying to tell no. me? <laughs> no, I guess... Um, so from very early on in my career, I, I looked at what everyone around me was doing. And I could see that there were developers who were taking away from the team and they were actually a minus on productivity across the team. And the good developers, the very good ones, would need to go in and make up for the bad developers. However, the stretch between their salaries was generally very small. And I found that out very quickly that you may have a difference of 
right now, maybe a software engineer in this area starts out making what 50,000 or 55, 60,000 if they have a college degree and they've done their internships and that kind of stuff. Maybe it's higher now. I don't know. I think yeah. 60, 65, somewhere in there. Yeah. But the very top developers, if you go out and look at Glassdoor, are probably at 120, um, maybe a little bit more than that in some cases, maybe a little less in other cases. Yeah. So it's a 2x difference, which is a significant difference. But if one developer is taking away from the team, why are they not having to pay to be on that team? The company is losing money on them, right? Right. So why shouldn't they have to pay instead of getting paid? Labor loss. And then the person who's making only twice as much as that individual is actually doing much more than twice the work because they have to go and not just fix what the other person did, they have to understand what the other person did, fix it, and, and do their job and probably many more on top of that uh, help average developers get along, pull the ones that are just status quo, zero sum up, up yeah. and, and teach them. And then there's usually leadership uh, things that are thrown on top of those folks as well. So this, the stretch between the two in terms of value to the company is much more than the difference between 60 and 120,000. And, and I don't, and the other thing is there are people listening to this that are like, oh my word, you're complaining about those numbers. And I'm, I'm not complaining about those numbers. I'm just talking about it in terms of logic and objectively, it could be any job anywhere at any rate. And if you have one person who's taking away from the, the job getting done, one person who's contributing to it, you have a problem. I'm, I'm not sure I understand. You're worried that people would be worried about you being upset about which numbers? No, no, I just mean that the, those salaries, 50,000, oh, yeah. 120,000. Yeah. And you and I sitting here talking about, it seems like there's a, a way that, that that some of these things are worth much more than that. And some of these things are worth much less. Oh, yeah. There are people who will never have the opportunity to, to make that much money. And I understand that. I'm very oh. appreciative of it. I sure. respect it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah that does, it does make sense to me. I'm not really too worried about that. Because I, I have many discussions with... with um, with my son now that he is he's getting to his early teens and so we're having lots of interesting discussions about jobs and money and like it's not it's not as abstract as it was three years ago because now he's he can see in his future oh at some point like i'm going to have to have a job and now he's thinking well what kind of job should i get and so we're trying to be very realistic about the spread of jobs and well if you're okay with not making a lot of money then you can work a job that makes you very happy and you're not going to be bothered by it if money is very important, then your your options are more selective. But um, well, and, and what the money does for your life too, and what right. what experience you want to get out of it. I, I couldn't agree more. The thing that I didn't have, if you don't mind me jumping in real no, quick, when I was your son's age, is I had very little exposure to anything other than being an employee, working for an employer. My models that I looked at for that. Uh, were, were my parents and, and that was what they understood to do and, and most of their generation was one where you worked for 30 years for the same employer and uh, you did what they asked yes or no sir you wore a tie every day you What's came safe? in at seven o'clock and that's what you did yeah. um, but I didn't have a lot of models of other ways to make income and I didn't understand that and, and I was taught to work very hard and I still work very hard and my I expect my people that work for me to work very hard and partners to work very hard and all that um, but I didn't understand that there was such a thing as passive income, right? Like on rentals or on stocks or on investments of some kind, where you don't actually do work, you take money that you earned somewhere else and it makes money for you. I didn't understand that there were 
there, there was money that did that in big ways and money that did that in small ways and ways to do it and that, that you could actually make money outside of working for someone else. Um, so that was eye-opening and, and it was it was also very difficult to get over and just leave and go do this. <laughs> so at what point did you realize, oh, like that's the lever that, that's going to move me away very from being like how early? Uh, well, so I got... Okay, so in... In college, I had started to. I was in college during the dot com boom. Right. And one of the reasons that I got into software was because I really loved this boom that was going on. I loved watching the market and watching all these stock shows on TV and all that kind of stuff and learning about each one of these companies. And I really liked learning about their valuations and how they made money and all that kind of stuff and how, how they worked as machines or whatever. And I looked at them as something that could be built because I saw all these machines, these companies being built, uh, whether it was Amazon or um, TiVo or whoever it was. And it was just, it was all just fascinating. And so what I realized is you could go out and get a business degree and you, you might get to a certain standard of living. But if you went and got a software degree, a degree in computer science, your standard of living was pretty much guaranteed to be pretty good from the start. And you can move around from one industry to the next and learn each of those industries and learn each of those businesses. Um, so that's kind of why I went into it. I, and, I, and I really like software. <laughs> I do like building things and, and all that um, and solving problems with software. But that was kind of how I got into it. So I realized that part early on. But then you were asking about how did I realize that you could make money in different ways. Well, part of it was seeing those stocks go up at that time. Part of it was starting to look around and seeing at the same time there was a housing boom, the start of a housing boom and seeing those valuations go up. Um, just being aware. But then uh, about a year into my career, somebody, uh, a mentor gave me two books and one was Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which we can talk about any time in more depth um, with the backstory there. If you don't know the backstory, maybe go look it up. But um, the other was the four laws of debt-free prosperity. And each of those talked about passive income. They each talked about how you can start to build wealth and frank, how you can build wealth and how you can move forward with that kind of thing. And that was where it really got interesting. And then it, from that point forward, from like 2002 or 2003 until 2009 was just frustration of not understanding how to get out of being an employee. Yeah. So there's a lot of those ingredients mixed together and then you realize, oh, like there's a need for people um, to write test software. Yeah. And then at some point you're, you, you must have, the light bulb must have gone on and you said, oh, maybe this could be a business that I, that I get into. Like instead of just being a contractor to someone else, I'm actually going to be the person who provides either contract employees or a software testing process or a product or something. I mean, at some, at some point you're right. like, hey, I'm, I'm going to make this jump and I'm going to do it. Do you remember how that came about? Yes, but it didn't happen just one night. I had a dream. And you didn't wake up? It was long in coming. But one thing that I started seeing was that every time there was a software project, I really liked jumping into the continuous integration part of it. I loved jumping into the automation part of it. Um, I had the opportunity to, to lead a group of testers in learning how to automate code. And that was a really big plus. And so kind of seeing those things and then learning how it all worked and that other vendors could come in and do that rather than a, an internal person was, was a big part of it. 
Um, the other thing that I noticed was that as a software engineer jumping in and doing those things, I was able to enable not just testers and developers. I was able to enable people who were in their careers as automation engineers, software automation engineers. And I was able to do it better than a, a lot of others uh, and able to, to train people up. So I don't know. I mean, yeah, I saw those things. I saw that there was a huge need for it. Uh, it's a really cool niche. We need more people that are very good at it. And frankly, I'm trying to focus this business on having the best talent we can and building that talent and learning continuously as we go in order to provide great things for customers. Do you feel like attracting people to get into uh, writing software tests is more challenging than say uh, saying hey we're going to uh, let you work on some greenfield project yeah you can pick whatever technology you want you're gonna make sure that it's gonna look cool yeah um, because I gotta tell you like in my experience test software doesn't necessarily look cool it's not it's not particularly sexy to most millennials that I've met that have come into the technology space. Yeah. It's, it's not, it's not to them. I totally get that. Yeah. Um, one, one of the things that I found along the way is, um, if, if you pick an area that other people don't want to be in and just get really, really good at it, <laughs> then good things can come. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think a lot of people don't think it's sexy. I think what's sexy is going in and doing the greenfield projects and building something from scratch. What I found in my career this far, after 16 years or whatever we're at now, is that there are very few greenfield projects, number one. Number two, there's a whole lot of maintenance out there. I, and I think that this is an underserved area in terms of technology, in terms of people with really good software development skills. Um, which is not to say that everybody else is not good. I don't mean that, I just mean that it's underserved. I think that a lot of people get into this because of two reasons. Number one, they were a software engineer and they weren't that great at it and they ended up here. I chose to do this and the guys that work for me chose to do this. Um, the, the people that work for me chose to do this. Number two is that a lot of people are using it as a way to get out of QA and into dev. And that's perfectly fine with me if people want to come work for me and that's where they're headed, that's fine, but work hard while you're while we're Can you know so this is the one thing that I always like to ask people that are doing QA and or test. Like, can you break down the difference between when someone talks about QA and a software world and they talk about test and software world? Like, how do you how do you distinguish between these two? Labels? Between testing and QA? Yeah. Well, I don't really know. I mean, I, so I just was at I was at Tiska, and that's kind mm -hmm. of a big part of it. Mary Thorne is one of the great leaders for Tiska in this area, and. She was talking about that. She said that she always labels her people as testers. The first thing when she gets into an organization is there are no quality assurance people because there's no way to assure quality. So let's remove that verbiage right away. That might be part of it. What do you think she wants to, why do you think she, she decided to, to make that labeling change? I think it changes, it started, vocabulary is very powerful. Yeah. And when you change the names of things, um, the vocabulary around them, the way that we talk about things has to change. And uh, our thinking starts to change along with that vocabulary. So subtle changes of things like names can be incredibly powerful. Sure. Um, I would assume that's why she does it. I think my impression is that, you know, if you, if you have a group of people that are, that are labeled QA and then something goes wrong, 
you can point at QA people and say it was your job to assure a certain level of quality in the product. And because there isn't, you know, the experience of the customers, the quality is lower. That's clearly your fault. I don't. So I would think that like if I'm in a QA group for a software group, like there's there's no way you can catch everything. No, there's not. There's no way you can test everything. There's right. no way you can catch everything. Period. Right. So, so the game becomes figuring out how to minimize risk yeah. and trying to learn how to mitigate risk uh, with your planning and all that. One of the things that I found along the way was uh, of my career is that I noticed that the majority of programmers tend to be very proactive people. They like to plan. They like to think a few steps out. They're very strategic in the way that they do things. The people who are in testing and QA tend to be more reactive. Um, they receive a product, they interact with that product in a way that's already fairly well de de defined if there is a product there, right? Yeah. Um, and so it, it tends to be very responsive. And so those those two things are, those are very different kinds of people. I'm also the kind of person, as you know, that I believe that people do what they are, they're not what they do. Um, and so trying to find people who have the skill set of software developers and the ability to plan ahead and look out in advance, but the understanding of a system and knowing how to interact with it in a, in a way that is, um, it, it's delivered to you, that's a very small group of people. Let's dial in a little bit about you know, your experiences working with the different customers that you've had. Yeah. Can you, can you think about one of the big victories that you've had where you delivered something to the client and the client was like, Oh man, like this is great. This is fantastic. Or at least you knew that you saved their bacon or provided, you know, a huge period of value to them. Well, like, yeah, well, and sometimes they don't know it, <laughs> right? Right, so, right, right. So right. I have to point it out and be like, hey, look at what we did. Um, yeah, so we have lots of good case studies. I haven't necessarily written them all up and haven't had my marketing folks write them up, but we're getting back into that. We'll have some new ones out pretty soon. But one of those cases was with a with, with a healthcare company, a pretty major healthcare company. And we were able to get in and they, they were in Scrum, they were doing Agile. And one of the things that we were able to do for them was to make sure that testing was very, very close in sync with development. So much so that we were writing scaffolding around certain subsystems so that we could write tests before the code was ever written. One of the really great wins that happened with that was in working with development and saying, okay, we need to start building out the test harness for this. Can we agree on an interface for this particular piece of code that we're going to write? And the developer was able to agree on that. We assumed the interface would be there, wrote our implementation of that interface, and had a fixture tied into that that made it so that we could very easily start writing test cases with a, with a, a test driver, I'll call it a robot framework, I think was what we were using. Yeah. And so that made it so that the testers could go ahead and write test cases without the code ever even being there at that point. And I actually mocked out what the code would return so they could get a feel for it and everything worked, quote unquote, until we were able to tie that back in. So the team was able to start testing very early on. Uh, we were in lockstep with uh, development all along that project. And that's just a huge win when you start having dozens and dozens of test cases written to try out specific use cases for a subsystem that has no UI within the iteration, right? That's cool. So that was a huge win. And, and we were able to do that across the whole project. I'm also thinking like if you're a developer and you're starting to knock out 
you know, you've got your story cards and you're going through it and you know that there's a battery of tests that are running and, you know, you just happen to look at the tests that are written, it might also inform you like, oh, like this is actually the, the implied communication between a user and the system, right? You look at the test and you're like, oh, you know what? I don't know. I see you're writing a test this way, but like, honestly, I don't understand why you've structured it. And you go over and you walk over to the test and you're like, I saw this test case and I got to ask, like, why did you do this? Because this is kind of weird and I, I'm not sure what you meant to do. And then test me like, oh, well, we want to test this interaction. And then the developer's like, oh, oh, you know what? We never even thought about that. That's great. And then they can go back and then they're like, hey, um, you know, the guys in the test group, they, they want to do this with the API. Yeah. And everyone's like, oh, that, that's, a, that's a great idea. Why don't we actually make things, you know, make work that way? Right. Yeah, yeah. Why don't so, we make the test cases pass? Yeah, and it's for you and I who have been through this a lot of times, it's yeah. very comfortable and it's it's actually a hugely reassuring thing once you get over the fear. But what I find is that, or maybe apprehension is a better word, or just, just concern. Um, when people are writing test cases before you write the code, how can you ever catch up, right? How, how can I fix all the bugs if they've already put test cases in there that, that I haven't written the code for? Are you saying that's it's the a, fear that people get? That's the fear that a lot of a lot of people who have not experienced test first development experience. Um, there are all these red tests. How will they ever be green? And um, if everything's failing, then why are we doing it in the first place? Like why? We, a, you, you know it. I've never. I don't think I've ever had that experience. So I'm trying to put myself in their shoes and think about what well, happens with us all the time. And I, I mean, the thing is, what we have to do is provide assurance for that and say, look. Totally understand where you're coming from. You're right. This is a hard thing to do. It is a bump to get over in the road and where we're going. You're totally right. Let me hear all of your thoughts and your concerns about this. And let's make sure that we move forward together. And when you're comfortable, we're comfortable and we can move forward with it. But that's something that, that you know, how many companies out there can help you get to that point, number one, right? Where your iterations are in lock, lockstep between test and development. Seems seem pretty rare. And then number two, uh, to, to be able to have the backing and the experience of having done it, to know what the issues are going to be going forward. And that's where we are as a company. So, yeah, I guess it can be kind of intimidating if you do see a bunch of tests that are failing all the time, especially if I guess management isn't um, very enlightened and they kind of use that as a stick to beat the developers into working longer hours because they're like, there's like a perceived bug count, right? Look at all these red tests. We're, we're obviously falling behind, and the reality is that you know you were never it, the product was never expected to pass all the tests until the very end, and that you know maybe maybe eighty percent of the test cases won't pass until you get to the last twenty percent of the implementation. Right. And yeah. so I could see how having to properly message that and give that kind of assurance assurances to the development group will go a long way. Um, it, it's, it is, it's concerning. If you've always been in the position where you've delivered a piece of code to a test team after it was completely written, yes, that's very concerning. Yeah. Um, if you're in a position where metrics have been used against you in the past for performance reviews and things like yeah. that, it's very concerning. If you're in a, an environment that's not safe, where, where for whatever reason those metrics are being used against you other than performance reviews or something, that, that you're right, it can be concerning. Or if you're just not used to it. And I mean, we all, when, whenever we got red marks on our papers in, in, in America, 
in school going up, red marks were bad, you know? And so you see this red on the screen and it's all bad. But yeah, one of the, we, there are lots of ways to, to get through this. And, and one of them is understanding that, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. Uh, you don't eat an elephant more than one bite at a time. This is the way we will take it a little bit at a time. And let's build confidence in the system under test. We can agree even on how we want to approach certain test cases passing and what, what, what direction they're going to pass in. So which pieces of functionality will be done first and which will be later. We, we can agree on all of that as we go along if we, if we work together on it. So, it, you know, it sounds like you've, you've gotten some, some uh, notches on the belt as far as like client wins. So you've, you've had multiple clients, you were, you, you've gone through a few uh, iterations. Um, so let's look a little bit forward into time. You know, the, I'll be the ghost of both of Fairmont future. So if you thought about where you think you want to be with both Fairmont in five years. Yeah, absolutely. What, is, what does this look like? Well, so number one, we set our vision very, very high. So the vision is to rid the world of bad code. And we do that right now through automated testing. But to rid the world of bad code is going to take a lot of work. And it's a vision that hopefully is, is big enough or a mission that's hopefully big enough that we'll be working at it for a long, long time. Um, but we intend to take very big steps in the next five years. Um, we're a services company services companies scale linearly. I would like to scale more fast than that. <laughs> I'd like to see us scale in a more geometric fashion. And usually that comes with productization. So there are some very, very small things in the works since we're still, we're still growing. Um, but there are some things in the works that we intend to see happen in definitely in the next five years. I see automated testing being in a completely different place than it is today in five years and in 10 years. And as a company and as the, the lead of a company, I have to look out that far and farther and make sure that we're positioned to, to, to handle that. So that's why it's so important to build a really great team of highly talented individuals at this point ones who have a background in software engineering because we are going to productize and we are going to move in that direction in the next five years, for sure. Um, yeah, I was thinking about what you said about ridding the world of bad code and I was thinking about um, some of the stuff that's come up about kind of the weird intersection between uh, Lean and Agile, right? And so like the Lean, from the manufacturing perspective, I mean, they talk a lot about um, how do you how do you ensure that you have a, a how do you eliminate the waste of low quality, right? And so the, what they what they found in a manufacturing environment is that if you inspect a product for the quality, if all your efforts are put into inspection, you have a certain defect rate, right? And what they found is that if you put your efforts into making sure that the quality is high from the start. You put the quality into the product that the defect rate plots. So like the analog for software is you put your efforts into ensuring that the software you're right is of, you know, you, that's where you put your investment in quality. In. So, and I was thinking like, is, is for the focusing on the test seems like it's inspection after the facts, but if you have the test available to you as you're writing it, it's actually the other way around. It can be, yes. Yeah. And so that's where a lot of the tools that are out there try to strive, especially things like Cucumber. 
and, and the idea of BDD, behavior-driven development, where the idea is that we can write our requirements in a spec and the, then implement the spec uh, with a fixture that ties into the code and when the code is written, the spec will work. That doesn't seem to be happening in most cases. Uh, what seems to be happening in most cases that I've seen is that the specs are written long after the the code has been written and we're still doing inspection as, as you're saying, inspection about the quality of the work. I, I prefer to get out as early as possible and to get us as early as possible in the cycle. And that even means sitting in on, sometimes sitting in on requirements gathering or requirements definition, uh, whatever the process is or the drawing up stories, um, defining the backlog and all that kind of stuff. If we can, the earlier we know what is coming down the pipe, the easier it is to work with development and to team up with them to build test cases at the beginning um, and to have them ready when the sprint is over, or when the iteration is over, or whenever the release is over. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm totally with you. I think construction is much more important in terms of quality. I can't, I can't test quality into right. a product. I, that's not something we can do. You're, but but when, sure you can reveal it. We can reveal it. And then the other thing is, if we're, if we're writing test cases, you've, you've read the book by um, uh, Kent Beck, The Test Driven Development, mm -hmm. um, by example. Yeah. It's a terrific book. And one of the things that he shows in there is that design can be emergent. And the design of software can be emergent. And if you start testing it early on, it forces the design into a testable place, but it also forces the design into um, uh, usually a more better organized, more cohesive, less tightly coupled implementation. Yeah, I'm nodding along because it's a podcast. <laughs> I'm singing to the I'm singing to the choir, <laughs> preaching to the choir. It, it's weird. Not only is it an emergent property of testing, but that knowledge is also emergent. I don't think it's something that you really realize until you've done some TDD and you're like, oh. Like, this is actually making me write code that then is better to, it's easier to test, but it just is much better designed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I saw something recently where an adapter should have been used in order to use a third party tool or to use a, an internal tool. And it was very clear that that should have been the case, but for whatever reason, it wasn't done. Now, if you had, had been forced by your stakeholders and by your team, to write test cases to act as if they're the third party interacting with your application or to act as that piece of proprietary code, you would have been forced to have an adapter that used the test code as well as whatever you chose to use. Yep. And so the adapter would have already been there in order to switch back and forth between these two things and implementing whatever the third party needed later on would have been much easier. So that's just an example right there of how these things can help so much. and. Um, looking at tests as a first-class citizen, looking at test automation as a first-class citizen, rather than a second-class citizen where they have no rights and no standing in society or whatever else, um, it can be a major, major help to how you, how you, how flexible your code is and how robust it is moving forward. Is that is that part of uh, when you work with a company? Is that part of the process? It's kind of exposing the teams if they're not already, you know, knowledgeable. Or they haven't been exposed to these things before. Is that, is that part of the process? Educating them? It is. We're, remember, we're still learning our process. We're still yeah. trying to figure out what the process is. And uh, this process is a little bit emergent over time as well. Um, 
So, yeah, I mean, what I've learned as a leader of this company is that working with clients, every client is in a different position. Every client is at a different place in their maturity as a software development shop. They're each individual on each team is at a different place in terms of their experience or maturity with regard to the particular job they're doing, with how they work with that team, with each of the tools they're using, with the domain knowledge for that particular client. Everybody's at a different place every time you go in and work with any of these folks. And so what our job is, is to walk in and figure out what that point is and work with that team to get them to meet their objectives. And sometimes we're able to stretch them a little bit past whatever their objectives were. But that requires a whole lot of understanding of the team and a lot of understanding of how to work with the team. And, and that's, but that's what we're good at. So, One final question. Well, maybe two. Um, so is there, is there a customer, uh, the ideal customer for, uh, for Fairmont? Absolutely. Um, so some people just say whoever. But what we're looking for is the companies who are far enough along Number one, they have their own development team. Number two, they don't have to be here, but I really like getting face-to-face -face with people. So being in the Triangle or in the, the, this area, you know, even Richmond or, or Charlotte or Wilmington is, is great as well. Um, but basically, if they're at a certain point in their development, so you're, you're past the initial startup phase, you've either got funding or have revenue coming in, you know what you're doing in terms of building your product. You've got a product out there. Um, and you know that this is a need or you're ready to experience it. And then the biggest customer is the ones where we, we generally don't work with large publicly traded companies. I'll say right. it that way. Um, there's a certain, a certain threshold that we look for. And, um, like they don't have an HR department or they have an HR department of one, like around that uh, size, larger. I mean, they can, the HR department isn't necessarily an indicator. Um, we, we like working, we like working with, with the scrappy startups, I guess, right? The ones that are, even even if they're up to 100 million in revenue, that's still small enough for us. To me, that's a gigantic company, but that's still small enough. So we're, you know, a few development teams, but we're not looking for a gigantic development department to spread this all across because we're not able to do that right now. Okay, the final, final question. If, if there was one thing you could educate your potential customers about before they pick up the phone and call you, what would you... What would you have, have? What would that be? I think I think there are two. Um, so so number one is understanding the value of what this is. So when we can come in and create a 16x ROI in less than half of a year, that's a huge ROI. Millions of dollars on however much input is is insane in the amount of testing that you get returned. But number two would be. You can't just turn a manual tester into an automated tester. And if you could, it would take at least 15 years, if not more, because I didn't start out as a manual tester and the people that work with me didn't start out at that point. We started out at a different point. Yeah. Um, the makeup of the individuals is different. Now we can absolutely work with your team and train your team to, to work with individuals who want to do this and who self-select into it, and who are interested in coding and who want to do this for their career. But just trying to take a random group of manual testers and turn them into this and, and get a positive return is not necessarily a, a winning approach. Cool. And we have lots of winning approaches. So, yeah. All right. All right. Well, thanks, uh, man. Fresh out of questions. <laughs> right. But I'm sure... 
I'm sure you out there in podcast land have more. What's the status of our listenership? Oh, uh, well, it's going up, I guess. We got a huge bump this month, and I don't know exactly why, but um, yeah, it looks like we're up to like 600 listens almost at this point, and this was our biggest month ever. Um, San Francisco just blew up this month, and I don't know why, especially Wednesday and Thursday of of, uh, the second week of March. So, huh? Yeah. You think I don't know what was going on? What about our listeners overseas? Do we still have a little listeners? And you know, Hossein has not listened as much lately, Aww. from what I can tell on Southbound. So we lost him. But um, yeah, so Australia is now bigger; is the second biggest. Okay. Um, Saudi Arabia is still big, and then um, I think I think uh, Germany had started growing a little bit. So yeah. So it's, it's crazy. I never would have expected those folks to listen to us. So the stops on the international tour would be Australia, Saudi Arabia, <laughs> and Germany. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get a sponsor. <laughs> well, thanks, James. I appreciate the interview. Thanks for doing it. No problem. Thanks right. for thanks for hosting here at the um, the studio. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll get together with you guys again soon. Um, I've enjoyed it. And we're going to have Cal Evans on soon. Yes. So we're looking forward to that. Cal is uh, from PHP land. He lives in, he's a PHP developer and has done a lot of great stuff, written a book recently about how to hire people, I believe. The cult- right? Culture of Respect. Yeah, I just read culture it. Respect. So um, a pretty quick read, um, but if you are a person who's trying to put together a team uh, it, and you've never done those before, well, even if you have, I mean, it's you should you should get it and it's, I think it's like $39. And you get an you get an ebook um, from um, from Cal, and uh, we'll put up the link to the to the book. But it's uh, it's only about a hundred pages ebook pages. I mean, it reads really quickly, but it's it's pretty dense in terms of tactics. Um, but also a little bit about the philosophy about why you're going to employ those tactics, and basically you're treating the developers in a way that makes them want to come and work for you, uh, not not with trappings, but with actual yeah, hey, we like you culture. Uh, which I'm trying to think back to all the places that I worked at uh, when I was still in corporate land. Um, and all the places I think that I had probably the best time were places where I was like, I really enjoyed coming into work because I kind of liked working with those people. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, I kind of felt like I was there for more than just a paycheck. Um, I guess in some places it was more like, you know, us against the world. But that was part of the culture, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. That's cool. Well, Cal's going to be awesome. He's one of the nicest guys that I think I've met in terms of um, programmers and, and all that. Yeah. But really nice guy. And he uh, he also has put together a few conferences, I think, and um, a number of other things. So there will be a lot to talk to him And he's about. Floridian. Is he originally? I know he lives in Florida now, but... Is I, he? Well, I don't know if he's a native Floridian, but oh, if he okay. lives there... Oh, well, that's right. He's just like us. <laughs> we're from Florida. Well, we don't so we're Floridians. <laughs> But he's not from there, but he lives there. So right. he's a Floridian. Well, we'll have lots to talk about. <laughs> cool. Well, I've enjoyed it. Once again, you've been listening to Reflection as a Service. And let us know on SoundCloud what you think. Set up a review. Get on iTunes and give us a review on there. James is at JD Jeffers on Twitter. Yes. I am at D. Paul Merrill on Twitter. You can find us at reflectionasaservice.com. And let us know what you want to talk about and what you want us to talk about. And we look forward to doing it. Thank you so much for listening. Have a good night. Ciao.